Okay, what do you look for in a leader? How should they be vetted and selected? How are they to be honored? To be up to the task. You know, these are questions that should be asked when choosing anyone to be entrusted with a position of leadership. Whether it be as President of the United States, Justice of the Supreme Court, or, most importantly, as an elder in the church. You know, Paul has made it clear that the church of the living God is the pillar and support of truth. And since the church is the pillar and support of truth in society, it's crucial that those in leadership of the church be qualified and carefully selected. Paul has already shared with Timothy and us the basic qualifications that elders, overseers of the church, must meet. Now he addresses the importance of carefully selecting them, how they are to be honored, and, if need be, how they are to be disciplined. Now his focus is on leaders of the church, but we can apply most of this to anyone who would lead. And he begins with the honoring of elders, and he brings it up within the context of their primary responsibilities. We're studying in 1 Timothy chapter 5, ready for verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul says the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. But what does he mean by rule? Now, the word literally means to stand before or to set over. It does mean to rule, but it carries with it the idea of ruling by leadership, not dictatorship. It pictures one who really cares for those under his charge. It's the same word used of a father ruling over his household, which is very appropriate for one who would accept the responsibility of caring for a family of God. Elsewhere, elders are referred to as shepherds, charged with the responsibility of shepherding a flock of God, which entails leading, protecting, disciplining, and feeding. And all of that is involved in ruling well. And Paul says that those who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. And he goes on to add, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Apparently, even in Paul's day, a distinction was beginning to be made between elders as a whole and individual elders who labored specifically in the areas of preaching and teaching. While all elders must be able to teach, for that is the primary means of feeding the flock, not all elders give themselves primarily to a preaching and teaching ministry. And, as Paul notes, effective preaching and teaching is hard work. 
It takes time and effort, more than many realize. You know, I love the way Solomon describes the work of a preacher in Ecclesiastes. I heard this years ago, and uh, it has become kind of a theme in the back of my mind. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. I like that. That's a challenge to me. And anyone who would presume to teach or preach God's word must take seriously the responsibility of knowing and understanding what God has said and of sharing it with others to the best of his ability. And that takes time and effort. And Paul says those who work hard at preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul quotes from the Old Testament here. And he makes it clear that he's talking about remuneration of some kind. The law demanded that the ox, which is an interesting parallel, the law demanded that the ox was not to be muzzled while threshing. As he walked over the sheaves of grain or dragged a sledge over them, he was to be free to partake of the fruit of his labors. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9 that the reason this was spelled out in the law wasn't really for the oxen's sake, but for our sake. It was teaching us a principle that Jesus openly stated, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul went on to make sure we understood that it is appropriate to pay those who labor in the areas of preaching and teaching by actually asking, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? Now, this is not suggesting that only those who can afford a teacher have the right to be taught. You know, the gospel is to be proclaimed freely to all, and that's quite frankly why I question the propriety of charging for tickets to attend gospel concerts or to hear well-known Christian speakers. But those who do labor diligently in a ministry of sharing the good news do have to support themselves and their family like everyone else. So it is appropriate that they be supported materially through offerings by those who benefit from their ministry or by the church as a whole. In fact, Paul says they should receive double honor. Now, the exact meaning of double honor isn't really clear. And its application has varied down through history. The third century church applied it to their love feasts and gave the preacher double portions of meat. Not a bad idea if the preacher likes hot dogs. Some of the early church thought that it meant preachers should get twice what widows who were supported by the church received. And it's been suggested that it means the preacher should get double what the elders get, which in our case would still be nothing. <laughs> well, some, sadly, in ministry today, apparently think this means that they should make twice what anyone else makes and be able to afford mansions, a, a fleet of luxury cars and private jets like some of those who make a fortune in public service. Obviously, neither is right. But preachers and all who forego a career 
to be of service to others should be honored doubly. And that doesn't mean you tell the preacher you liked his sermon twice or that you give him two gift cards on Pastor Appreciation Month. Perhaps the best understanding of this is that those who commit themselves to a ministry of preaching and teaching should get the same honor or respect that is given to all elders, plus honor in the material sense of the word to support himself and his family. The point being, quite simply, that the church has an obligation to support those who spend so much time preparing to preach and teach in addition to other ministerial duties that they don't have time to seek a wage elsewhere. Sadly, there are churches that do need to hear this, but quite honestly, we don't. You have taken very good care of me and my family for 45 years, and for that, I'm very grateful. What Paul says next is also something I pray we really don't need to hear. Verses 19 through 21. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. You know, anyone who stands before others paints a target on his back. And since elders are on the firing line, it's expected that they will be fired upon. So what should your response be when an accusation is hurled at an elder? Nothing. Part of the job of shepherding, entails confronting wayward sheep, and wayward sheep generally don't like confrontation. So it's to be expected that some will strike out against a shepherd. That's why Paul says we are not to even receive an accusation against an elder if it comes from only one source. We shouldn't pay attention to it. Or pass it on, making it appear that it did come from more than one source. Only if an accusation is made by two or three witnesses, those who have first-hand evidence that something is true, we are to pay attention to any charge brought against an elder. Rumor and innuendo are not to be given credence in the church. And... They shouldn't be the basis of breaking news in the media either. I think we would all be much better off if we were slower to judgment. Now, that's not to suggest that sin should be ignored in the life of a leader. And that is especially true of those who would lead in the church. The body of Christ is divine, but overseers of the church are still made of flesh, and like everyone else, they can succumb to the wiles of the devil. In fact, the devil works overtime to tempt, entrap, and to be able to discredit a preacher or an elder. 
So if a credible accusation of wrongdoing is brought by two or three witnesses, it must be explored and addressed. Paul tells us those who continue in sin, who not only make a mistake or stumble, but who continue in sin, should be rebuked in the presence of all. Now, he doesn't give us the steps we should take to get to that point in disciplining a brother rightfully accused of sin, but Jesus does. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, we read, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take two or three more with you, so, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. I would assume from that that the procedure, the proper procedure, for the disciplining of an elder would begin with a one-on-one -on -one confrontation, preferably by another elder. If the matter can be rectified at that point, that's the end of it. If, however, the problem can't be resolved at that level, two or more should then confront him and together seek his repentance. If he still refuses to repent and he continues in sin, he is to be publicly rebuked before the congregation. Now, Paul adds as a side benefit to such a public rebuke of an elder that the rest of the congregation will be made fearful of sinning. If an elder can't get away with it, surely they can't either. Now, obviously, this holds true outside of the church as well. Those in leadership should not be victimized by witch hunts, but no one should be above a proper administration of the law. Continuing then with Jesus' instruction on discipline in the church. If an elder would refuse to repent, he should not only be removed from office, but disfellowshipped from the church. And it should be done in the hopes that by being delivered back into the world, he would see the results of his sin and long to be restored to fellowship with his Savior and with his brothers and sisters. Now, obviously, this is very serious business, and no church likes to discipline its members. And it's very difficult to do so today, when anyone can simply join another church and avoid discipline altogether. But if we are to be true to our Lord, we must follow through on discipline when given the opportunity to do so. And the elders are not to be excluded from such discipline. They are to be afforded protection from unsupported accusations, but willful, continual sin is not to be overlooked in their lives any more than it is to be overlooked in any of our lives. And Paul felt so strongly about this that he solemnly charged Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias doing nothing from a spirit of partiality. No one is to be allowed to gain such stature in the church that his sins 
are to be overlooked. And sadly, this does happen. Years ago, when we first started supporting Theo, he was working at a Christian college in uh, St. Saint, Saint Vincent. We took him under our wing and he agreed to the leadership of our elders in his ministry, in his, his life, and became very concerned about a situation at the Christian college because the president of the college had begun having inappropriate relations with girls in the school. And everyone knew it. But he was the key to support back in the States for the college. And so no one would do anything. Theo was very, very upset by that. He counseled with us, and our counsel to him was quite simply, get out of there. And he did. He went to Jamaica, and for, what, 20-some years now, we've supported him in a very effective ministry in Jamaica. Discipline in the church is important. And no one, no one should ever be allowed to gain such stature that their sins are overlooked. God only knows how many churches have been destroyed or made impotent because a powerful individual or a select group of individuals felt themselves above the need for personal accountability. An important but uncomfortable section of Scripture here. Well, the final thing Paul has to say about those in leadership, the eldership in particular, is that they must be carefully selected. Continuing on, verses 22 through 25, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach, and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Now, most commentators agree that the laying on of hands here refers to the setting apart of men to the eldership. If that's the case, what Paul is saying is quite simply, be sure a man is qualified in character as well as gifts before you set him apart as an elder. The job of overseeing the church is the most important job in the world because, as we've already noted, the church is the pillar and support of truth. To therefore set a wrong man over a church not only affects the church, it affects all of society. That's why Paul spelled out in detail in chapter 3 what qualifies a man to serve as an elder. And why he here goes so far as to tell Timothy that if he lays hands on the wrong men, he will have to share responsibility 
for their sins. Now that is a very frightening prospect. You know, it's one thing to be held accountable for your own sins. But to also bear the burden of accountability for others is overwhelming. And here we learn that to lay hands on someone, to vote or affirm them into a position of leadership without carefully examining their qualifications and character makes you a participant in any sins they might commit. Wow. That ought to make us stop and think before we make an X or put a little dot filled. What he says next is most likely related to that warning. And it's a bit awkward. The transition seems weird. And I'm afraid some have decided that uh, verse 23 is the most important verse in that text. (laughs) And ought to be on their fridge, but no, it shouldn't. (laughs) The admonition for Timothy to keep himself free from sin apparently triggered a special concern in Paul's mind about Timothy's health. Timothy had stomach problems. And Paul didn't want Timothy to go so far in his attempts to keep himself from even the appearance of sin or sinful habits that he avoided something he needed for his stomach's sake. And that's something was a little wine. Now, this is not a blanket approval of social drinking or an encouragement to attend a wine tasting party. This is simply making allowances for medicinal purposes. Now, even my grandmother, who had an alcoholic for a brother and was a teetotaler, kept a little bottle of alcohol in the house for medicinal purposes. I don't think she ever used it. But I think this is a good thing for us to to understand because a good parallel to what Paul is saying here can be made of many of our modern drugs. You know, some have side effects and can be abused, as we've sadly discovered with opioids. But that does not invalidate their legitimate use or mean our witness is adversely affected if we use them as they are intended to be used. Paul's advice to us would probably be, go ahead and use the medications you need. He's not suggesting that we should drink or pop pills only that it's permissible to use what is necessary to maintain good health. That's an aside to what Paul is writing to Timothy. He then picks up his main line of thought by reminding Timothy of the danger in making snap judgments concerning a man's qualifications to be a leader or an elder in the church. The sins of some men are evident, and they can therefore quickly be dismissed from consideration for leadership. 
Others, however, may have well-concealed sin in their life. A careful vetting process is therefore important when considering anyone for a leadership position, especially in the church. And while a man's good deeds are the ones we usually focus upon when considering him for the eldership, we must also be alert for those deeds that are not good, things that he might be trying to hide from view. Now, Paul does assure us that eventually a man's true nature will be revealed. On Judgment Day, if not before, any sin that has not been dealt with through the cross of Christ, sin that has been intentionally concealed, will be revealed. Some behaviors, good and bad, are readily evident. Others are not. But none can be concealed forever. Truth always wins in the end. But much damage might be avoided if we would seek to know the truth before the end. It is therefore imperative that we carefully examine any who would stand before us and lead us. We must make certain that they are headed in the right direction before we agree to follow them. You know, Jesus invited those who would be his disciples to follow him. And Paul was able to assure the Thessalonians that they could follow his example as he followed Christ. When writing to elders, Peter exhorted them to shepherd the flock of God among them, proving to be examples to the flock. And he reminded them that they would be held accountable by the chief shepherd. So obviously, we must make certain that the shepherds we follow are following the chief shepherd. Only then can we confidently sing together, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us.